This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Monday, October 12th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You probably hear a lot that Gaza is the world's biggest prison or like a huge outdoor prison. And there are some stats to back up that claim. It's 25 miles long by four or five miles wide. There are over two million people in that space. You cannot readily leave and come back. And of course, what's going on there and will continue to go on as Israel attempts to root out Hamas will carry an enormous toll on the civilians. But let us think about the ways in which it is something other than an actual prison or a huge outdoor prison. Well, here's one claim that you hear about Gaza's density. This tiny strip of land is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Actually, I live in a more densely populated place, if you mean Brooklyn or even New York City. Gaza is the third or sixth most densely populated country, depending how you count countries and if you count Gaza as a country. But as far as tiny, Baltimore, Seattle, Des Moines, Tampa, there are some of the U.S. cities that are smaller. And as far as dense, Hoboken, Jersey City, San Francisco are more densely populated. But you can leave Hoboken or Baltimore, I hear you saying. I know, but why would you ever want to? Now, that objection is, in fact, valid. But you can leave Gaza. There are 20,000 people a day who, or were before the attacks, who traveled on work permits and came back each day. And also, every year, tens of thousands of people leave. This isn't some sort of triumph. It's a, an acknowledgement of how bad things are in Gaza, but also how unprison-like it is. You can't or people can't just leave. Here's a report from NPR in 2019. Egypt and Israel impose a blockade to contain Hamas and keep militants from crossing their borders. To offer relief for Gaza's two million residents, Egypt opened its border last spring. And since then, tens of thousands of Palestinians, some estimate around 35,000, have left. And that gets to the fact that Gaza is not entirely a prison. And it also gets to the underlying wisdom of the security controls that keep it as something like a prison. I mean, you can't say that the Hamas containment worries were misplaced. You don't need me to make this case with words. Just look at Google Maps. There, when you search around Gaza, you'll find farmland, about 45,000 acres of farmland. Gaza has an amusement park. It used to have a water park, but Islamists burned it down, reportedly. Hamas militants. Gaza is on the Mediterranean. It has beaches and beach resorts. None of these are beautiful or as bountiful as American beaches, farms, or playgrounds. But I just offer all of this because I hear the argument about open-air prison about, I don't know, 100 times a day. And about 50 of those times, I say, well, that's not exactly true. And then another 50 times I say, I wonder if my listeners would appreciate these facts or would say, Mike, do not be so literal. Anyway, I got it. And I'll say once again, that these meager scraps that hint at a decent existence in Gaza, they're not a prison, but they are on the brink of destruction. They themselves, what little they have, which is nothing less than tragic with no analogies or exaggerations required. 
on the show today. International elections going every which way, my unifying theory of disunity. But first, when the invasion of Gaza begins and all signs are that will be soon, what will the Israelis encounter? How possible is rooting out Hamas? And also, what would failure look like? I'm joined next by Matthew Levitt, a former intelligence expert at the U.S. Department of Treasury, current fellow at the Washington Institute, where he runs their program on counterterrorism and intelligence. Matthew Levitt, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Matthew Levitt is the Fromer Wexler Fellow at the Washington Institute, director of its Jeanette Nilay Reinhardt program on counterterrorism and intelligence. And he was a former deputy assistant secretary for intelligence and an analyst at the U.S. Department of Treasury. He knows about all of this. In fact, he wrote a book called Hamas, Politics, Charity and Terrorism in the Service of Jihad, forward by former Ambassador Dennis Ross. Matt, thanks for coming back on to The Gist. Mike, thanks for having me. So I'll start with an article I read in The Atlantic by Hussein Abish. Israel is walking into a trap. Storming into Gaza will fulfill Hamas's wish. Before I read the article, I didn't know which direction the author would go. I've seen two versions of this argument. One is that it was a purposeful, horrific attack meant to stoke a response that was purposefully horrific, thereby making the Gazans suffer and turning world opinion against Israel. But in fact, and I thought that that was a tenuous case, but in fact, what the author more focuses on is how hard the battle will be once Israel goes in. So let's just take it from that aspect first. This is going to be hard. There are many miles of tunnel under Gaza. This was purposeful in terms of Hamas knowing where its ground is that it has to defend and knowing that Israel will be coming into its territory. So you'd agree with that, right? I don't know if it's a trap, but this is no easy military operation, is it? This is an incredibly difficult operation, both operationally for the Israel Defense Forces um, and for uh, the civilians in Gaza who are caught in the crosshairs. Um, we just published here at the Washington Institute a poll that w was based on data taken in July, indicating that somewhere around 70% of the population of Gaza does not want Hamas in power, wants Hamas disarmed, and wants the Palestinian Authority to come back and rule Gaza. No one likes the Palestinian Authority. They're, they're corrupt. They're incapable. The fact that that's where they are is very telling. I think it's important to note that the overwhelming majority of people in the Gaza Strip are victims too. I, I do think, though, that it's important to take a step back and think about what Hamas's goals were here, um, because I do think that this was Hamas's intention to carry out an attack that was so fierce, so barbaric, uh, that Israel would have no choice but to go in on the ground. And so I think Hamas has played the long game. 
They spent a tremendous amount of time and money and effort to build up a, a fighting force that could carry out the attack we saw. The types of uh, arms, RPGs, and, and, and whatnot that, that they used. It's still early days, but the um, evidentiary documentary material that the Israelis are finding in southern Lebanon left behind by these Hamas fighters is very, very telling. The intelligence was incredible. Pains me to say it, but it was. Where's the dentist office in this kibbutz? Where's the security box? Where is the intel office on this base? How many people to expect? And, and stressing in, in their documents the need to kill as many people as possible, to kidnap as many people as possible. And the only reason you kidnap this many people is to really ensure that the Israelis have to come in. Mm -hmm. Although I have seen Hamas officials, political officials quoted as saying they had no pre-knowledge of the attack. And there is some plausibility to that claim because they were trying to keep it known to as few people as possible. Or do you not believe that claim? This is just a factor of operational security. If you believe that Hamas political leaders didn't know that a plot like this was in the planning and could happen at one point, talk to me, I'll sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um, there have been plenty of Hamas leaders who said exactly this. We knew there was something we've been planning for two years, but the when, I'm sure they woke up in the morning like, oh, look, it's happening now. Because Hamas knew they had to adhere to an extremely rigorous information uh, um, protection campaign because Israel has such robust intelligence capabilities. I don't think anybody thought Hamas would be able to pull this off, would be able to keep this secret, would be able to collect this kind of granular intelligence, but they did. And one of the ways they did that is by maintaining extremely strict operational security protocols. And so I don't think it's unlikely that the Hamas political leadership woke up Saturday morning saying, oh, the plan that we all talked about for some time is happening today. But they definitely knew that this was in the, in the, in the makings. So let's go back to this idea of Israel walking into a trap. I originally said I thought that the trap could mean that Israel, because of the nature of war, will probably break uh, by letter of the law. Some international law might commit what at least will be portrayed as atrocities. And that's the trap. It's a public relations trap. But we've been talking more about a militaristic trap. I want to talk about both of them. Is it in terms of, we know, as you laid out, it's going to be hard. There are ambush sites, many miles of underground tunnels that they knew this day would come, did the Hamas fighters. They know how to staff those tunnels. We saw how good their operational uh, tactics are. So militaristically, would you call it a trap or would you call it an extremely tough fight that Israel knows what it's going to encounter? This is a very tough fight. The Israelis have a very good sense of what they're getting into. There will be traps. You cannot escape all of them. Um, I think that's one of the reasons you haven't seen the Israelis go in yet. I think there's going to be some time still before they actually go in. I think the way they go in is going to be different than people suspect. I think that's part of the reason why they've told civilians to evacuate the northern part of the Gaza Strip. It's why they've turned on water in part in the southern Gaza Strip. Um, I think they're also concerned about the safety of the hostages some 150 hostages, approximately 130 are being believed to be held by Hamas and about 30 more by Palestinian Islamic Jihad, including people from at least 20 different countries. Um, I think maybe they're trying to buy some time for some diplomatic pressure from all those different countries um, and some quiet uh, diplomacy that's trying to happen. There's always concern you go in, whether it's 
what they're doing already with missiles? Are you going on the ground? You're worried of hitting um, uh, civilians, both Palestinian innocents and the hostages. And, and you have to assume that Hamas leaders are keeping those hostages pretty close by as human shields. Um, but the Israelis have known about these tunnels for some time. They've talked about them as the Hamas Metro in past conflicts. They have talked about um, um, targeting them in their bombing campaign. It's very clear from the air campaign that's been happening so far that a significant uh, portion of the bombings, in particular into where you can see streets are being hit, is, is targeting these tunnels um, because they pose a very, very significant risk, not only of uh, casualties, but of additional uh, Israelis uh, being wounded and kidnapped. Yeah. If Hamas wants to capitalize on world opinion, but also wants to slaughter Israelis, aren't those two goals at odds as they try to argue their case that this is uh, purely uh, a genocidal aggressiveness on behalf of Israel? Israel could just counter, well, look at how many of our soldiers have been killed by booby-trapped and people popping out of tunnels. I don't think the issue here is Hamas' discomfort with dead Israeli soldiers. They will say this is war. They will say that under their understanding of what resistance is and the right to self-determination, they can go to war whenever they want with soldiers. They will say those soldiers came into their territory. I don't accept all of that. That's that's how that will be portrayed. The issue really for them is the catastrophic success that they experienced in terms of their invasion of southern Israel. I think it likely that they had, didn't expect that they were going to kill as many people or kidnap as many people. I think they probably anticipated, I think as all of us did, that if there were to be some type of cross-border raid, a whole lot of them would be killed trying to cross the border, that, that the Israeli system would not have collapsed as it did. Um, you can see in the first couple of days during and after that assault and massacre, Hamas leaders, military and political both, were um, doubling down. Ismail Haniya, based in Doha, giving this long fire-breathing speech that ends, this only ends one in two ways, victory or martyrdom. Um, not making any excuses for kidnapping babies, beheading babies. I mean, really horrific stuff. Now, more recently, you have Hamas people going on television saying, no, 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 we, we targeted the soldiers. Maybe some other people came in behind us, which does appear to have been the case. There are all kinds of people came in, but only they did the atrocities. The video evidence, including video evidence from their own GoPro cameras that the Israelis have seized is telling otherwise. But you can see their discomfort with this. And I think, because I think you've hit a point on the head, right? You, 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 it's very difficult to say that, uh, you know, you're the good guys when you carry out an attack that we haven't seen since the Islamic State carried out this type of attack. Yeah. And on the point where Hamas leaders are denying atrocities, um, totally, totally implausibly so, and blaming it on just regular Gazans who streamed in after the holes in the fence that we made, and this has been claimed by a couple of Hamas leaders, aren't... It is hard for me to square that and the idea that they have any sympathy for the average Gazan who isn't necessarily a Hamas militant. They're telling Israel and the world, oh, these regular Gazans, they're the ones who killed your people in a terroristic fury. I'm not saying it's supposed to make a whole lot of sense, Mike. I'm saying this is the best um, propaganda they can come up with in the moment, given the terrible optics of what they did. They mm. much prefer that the conversation shift 
to the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza. And I stress Palestinians are suffering in Gaza, right? I mean, all of us, you know, <clears throat> who are human have to, you know, be broken by what happened to the Israelis in southern Israel and broken by what's happening to Palestinians who are trapped under Hamas rule. I blame Hamas for this whole situation, which they brought down on all of us. Um, I don't know what another country would have done if that number gross, let alone that number as a proportion of the population of people were targeted and killed in such a way. It's just a horrific situation all around. Well, the history of every Western country that's been beset by a terroristic rage, uh, raid of even a fraction of that, the history is to go and find out who committed the raid and either arrest them or kill them. That has happened several times, and that is what always has happened, to answer that question. Um, let's talk a little bit about the failures of the Israelis. Were they, as portrayed in some of these uh, post accounts, a couple kids in their underwear getting slaughtered in their bunks because these uh, Hamas uh, fighters surprised them. It doesn't seem like any resistance was uh, put up, and it didn't, doesn't seem like there were many fortifications to prevent this sort of thing. Was that sh is that accurate? Was that shocking to you? So I have to caveat: it's still very, very early, and 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 to, to know ultimately there'll be some commission of inquiry and it'll come out in painful detail. What does appear to be the case, however, is this. One, the Israelis seemed to think that they had deterred Hamas both militarily and by providing sufficient economic opportunity. Just the week before this massacre, Israel had increased the number of Gazan civilians who were going to be allowed to work, come into Israel to work. There was the sense that, you know, Hamas was still Hamas, but they didn't want to lose their governance project, and they were largely deterred. So every 18, 24 months, there'd be a, a rocket battle, but, you know, that would be it. The corollary to this was the Northern Front has been heating up significantly. The West Bank has been heating up significantly with shootings, etc. And it appears that um, the uh, Southern Command uh, was relying far more heavily than anybody anticipated on uh, remote sensors and remote capabilities. Now, the Israelis have really sophisticated capabilities here, some built into the fence, some looking into Gaza from the fence, from the sky, drones, balloons. They had remote-controlled automatic uh, weaponry. One of the Hamas uh, intelligence successes was identifying all of this and identifying that the systems were connected by a cellular system. And that if you took out those cellular systems with cheap quadcopter drones dropping cheap grenades, videos of which you can see online, maybe, and I don't know if they knew that it would happen for sure, maybe they thought it was a maybe, but at least maybe you could disrupt the communication between these systems. And that's what happened. Um, the fact that you had soldiers, you know, asleep in their underwear, that's the time of day it was, they were on their base. There are lots of different definitions of acts of terrorism. Some do, and some do not include targeting, um, soldiers when they're off duty. Um, the fact that it took so long for people to get down there, that, that, that certain Israeli soldiers started hearing things and just got in their cars and drove down. 
Um, the fact that the uh, community defense systems were only able to do what they did, I don't think is a surprise. Those were never meant to stop uh, an invasion of a thousand people. Right. Um, and I think it's telling that Hamas had instructions on their person, where to go, where things were. There's one video, they storm into kibbutz, they lose their orientation for a moment, they look at their stuff, they're reoriented, and they go to a specific place. I don't have the, all the answers as to how the vaunted Israeli security and intelligence system failed so miserably. I'm sure that'll come out in spades. Yeah. I just think of other areas in the world, which are hotspots, which supposedly um, ebb or flow. I think of the Joint Task Force at Guantanamo. You know, U.S.-Cuban relations have been better, been worse, but it's still staffed and patrolled quite rigorously. I think about the uh, demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea. You know, we don't let... um, breakthroughs in diplomacy, if you will, take our eye off the ball. Although maybe this is what the Israelis were telling themselves about Gaza. I don't know exactly what the pressure points at Guantanamo are. Maybe there are many situations in the world that can be overrun by very motivated, very uh, well-planned-out attacks. But that's why I find it surprising. And that's why I find explanations about, oh, we thought that Gaza was a force we could work with. Yeah, but trust and verify. And even if you think things are getting better, there's still Hamas and there's st- it's still Gaza. Look, we're making lots of assumptions here mm-hmm. about how effectively those other places are patrolled on a regular basis. The South Koreans have already come out and said that this catastrophe along the Israeli-Gaza border is forcing them to reassess some of how they do things along the South North Korean uh, demilitarized zone. All of this is speculation at this point, Mike. Um, I I don't have the answers, and I think when we get the answers, they're still going to be mind-blowing. Yeah. This was uh, an intelligence failure and a military deployment failure. Uh, I'm not going out on a limb by saying that. It was a failure of a lack of imagination to think maybe they weren't effectively deterred. And therefore, I've been telling anybody who will listen, and since you're listening, I'll tell you too. All of our preconceptions, all of our paradigms for understanding Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, or others for that matter, but the ones we've been thinking about for a long time, have to go out the window. I get asked a lot if Hezbollah is going to enter this war, and I keep telling people that- was on my list, yes. Well, well, let's jump there for a sec, because there's lots of details we can get into, but the first thing I think we need to acknowledge is everyone, myself included- needs to put their paradigms to the side. There's the world until Saturday morning a week last, and then there's the world now, okay? So it makes a lot of sense to say that, look, Hezbollah really wanted to have a brief conflict with Israel, and I've been saying this for a while, but they've been worried that they wouldn't be able to keep it short, and they really did not want to get into a big thing with Israel because they know that Israel has changed the way they do business since 2006. Um, And they know that the Iranians really don't want them to waste a lot of their rockets. Now they want those rockets saved as a deterrent against an Israeli or frankly anybody else's potential military strike on an Iranian nuclear program. And they also wanted it for as a second strike capability in the event that there was such an attack. Those calculations remain, but they can't be the totality. I think this is part of why you're seeing two U.S. aircraft carrier groups move into the region to signal to others, well, as the president said in one word, don't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
I, 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 I've had several people tell me recently, and not just Israelis, it's not clear there's going to be a bigger war. But if there is, it's not one we can afford to, to lose. Matthew Levitt, author of Hamas, Politics, Charity, and Terrorism in the Service of Jihad, is a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Intel and Analysis at the Department of Treasury and is now the Washington Institute's Director of the Jeanette and Eli Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Thank you again, Matthew. Thank you, Mike. Always a pleasure. And now the spiel. In international election results, the conservatives have wrested control from the left in New Zealand. The projected seats for the National Party and ACT Party gives them just enough to form government together. The result will see first-term MP and New Zealand national leader Christopher Luxon take the top job. But what of the right-wing in other countries? German broadcaster DW takes us to their backyard. To Poland now, where the right-wing governing Law and Justice Party appears to be on the verge of losing power. Exit polls from Sunday's general election suggest the party won the most votes, but that opposition parties will be better placed to form a government. The opposition leader, Donald Tusk, called it the beginning of a new era. And from the polls to the Kiwis to the just bananas development in Ecuador. Actually, it's not inexplicable, not that type of bananas. It's just that in the Ecuadorian elections, a banana scion, a princeling of a banana empire, has peeled away support from the socialist challenger to slip into first place. 35-year-old Daniel Noboa was declared the winner by electoral officials. He beat leftist lawmaker Luisa Gonzalez, who had been handpicked by Ecuador's former president, now in exile in Europe. Noboa's father is Ecuador's richest man and had run unsuccessfully five times for the presidency. Noboa NPR holds- reporting there. In less than a week, the Argentinian election will, if first-round results and public opinion polls hold up, the coalition of center leftists, Peronists, but definitely of the left, who have seen enormous inflation, like 125%, they'll be ousted and poised to win is Javier Millet, who rails against the leftists that have been in power for, he says, 100 years. So do you see the trend? I mean, how could he say 100 years? There was definitely a right-wing authoritarian government in place. But anyway, that's what he says. But the trend is clear, right? You get it. Look, Look throughout the world. Think about what I've said. From right to left in Poland, from left to right in New Zealand, from moderate left to hard right in Argentina, from corrupt right to incorruptible because he's so rich from banana money already in Ecuador. Whoa, there is no pattern. Except there is. The pattern is change, tacking to the other direction. Because when things aren't going good, inflation almost everywhere in the world and inflation plus crime in places like Ecuador, people want change. Oh, by the way, Sweden swung to the right and they're experiencing a huge increase in gang violence. Well, huge for Sweden. It's about the same as like the two worst zip codes in Baltimore or St. Louis. Also, we have UK. They're poised to throw the Tories out in favor of labor, right? to left, left to right, sit down, stand up, fight, fight, fight. It's all a fight. Democracy is a fight. Democracy gives the humans it serves the ability to call for change. But human nature almost takes away the ability to think rationally or to have something approaching 
free will, the instinct is almost undeniable to reach for the lever of change when times are bad. When one's material circumstances or one's safety is decreasing or perceived to be decreasing, you want change. And by you, I mean you, me, the Kiwis, the Poles, and the Ecuadorians. Whatever was happening, you go the other direction. And you tell yourself it's reason specific to the candidate or the country or the circumstance, but it's usually not. Sometimes we vote to change, not because things are going bad, but just because we can vote for change. In the U.S., since 1938, there have been midterm elections 22 times, 22 chances for the voting public to vote for the president's party or against them. In 20 of those 22 chances, they voted against the president's party. So democracy, self-interest, self-determination, or is it really just some deep-seated human inclination to mix things up? I mean, if you didn't even have elections, if you just fixed the settings as this way, then the other way, you'd basically tell the story of at least U.S. democracy and more democracy, quote unquote, more democracy means more toing and froing. I mean, if you show me a place that consistently backs one party through the years, I'll show you a place when that one party has clamped down on true decision making by crushing their rivals. Take, say, the PRI in Mexico. So what's the solution? Friends, this is the solution. Autocracy or kingdoms or systems without a lot of input from the people, they're always worse. But there is a difference between the people's will and the people's whim. That said, the Italians have a saying, un papa grosso ne segue una magro. A fat pope follows a thin one. The papacy has been called the world's last absolute monarchy. In practice, the world's youngest, oldest, fairest, and most troubled, least troubled democracies, they cannot help but following the grasso to magro pattern. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com. By the way, today was the day where our CLFAO emptied the dustbuster, which has now become the Lanternfly Containment Unit. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, jeeperoo, and thanks for listening.